0: Thanks so much for tuning in to My Time, My Life with Trinette Faint. My past episodes, I've talked about um, the risks that I've taken in my creative life and defining my own successes in the faces of failure and talking about key transformative moments that changed my life. This episode, I'm doing something a little different. I'm bringing in a guest, Dr. Melissa Blanco-Borelli from Northwestern University and having a chat with her about... The risks that she's taking in her life and how her work is affected by her being a woman of color, among other topics. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Dr. Melissa Blanco Borelli. Dr. Blanco Borelli is a critical dance studies scholar, choreographer, and cultural critic. She's an associate professor of theater and the director of the dance program. She's been on faculty at MIT, University of Surrey, UK. Royal Holloway University of London, also in the UK, and the University of Maryland College Park. As an interdisciplinary scholar, her research interests are broad. They include blackness in America, critical dance studies, performative writing, popular dance on the screen, black performance theory, black feminist autoethnography, historiography, archives, and the digital humanities. Melissa is the author of She is Cuba, a Geniality of the Mulata Body, which won the Dance Studies Association's De La Torre Bueno Prize for Best Book in Dance Studies 2016. And she's also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Dance and the Popular Screen 2014. She is an affiliated faculty in performance studies at Northwestern University. And some fun facts about her. She is a polyglot. She speaks six languages. She plays the piano, and she loves to run. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Sorry, I had to clear my throat. I should have done it before. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me to have this tete-a-tete virtually with you. (laughs) Of course, of course. We're happy to have you here.
0: So let's dive right in. So... Tell us a bit how you decided to go into academia versus becoming a dancer. <laughs>
1: um, well, it was an easy decision for me because although I liked to dance and I had taken dance lessons, I didn't necessarily train or to be a professional dancer. Um, I was in the entertainment industry, uh, for, uh, a bit of time, but I realized that I, um, I enjoyed, uh, reading and writing and while I was dancing for fun I was spending a lot of time going to see live dance and Mm -hmm. then I think in one of if okay so the story is that I was performing because I I used to dance in this local Afro-Cuban dance company in Los Angeles in the late 90s early 2000s Mm -hmm. and the story is a professor from uh, UC Riverside came to one of my performances, asked me if I wanted to come to one of her classes and give a lecture demonstration. And then I did. And then she said, oh, you know, you'd be a great candidate to get a PhD here um, because they knew that I had already, you know, that I I was teaching mm-hmm. um, and I had gone to, you know, good universities, had good degrees and I enjoyed critical thinking and thinking about dance. Mm-hmm. So, Uh, So then she had me speak to the then chair of graduate studies, um, who actually, at that time, I had no idea how significant she was in the dance studies field. I just was like, oh, this nice woman that I spoke to. She wound up then being on my dissertation committee. Anyway, and she's she's the professor who started the whole field of critical dance studies, Susan Lee Foster. But anyway, I digress. So ultimately, it was... It was kind of just a a decision. It wasn't a, a an overly planned decision. I remember I was I had been teaching. I had left entertainment. Mm-hmm. I started teaching to bide my time to decide what I wanted to do next. And, and what were you doing in
0: entertainment? Sorry, didn't want to interrupt. Oh yeah,
1: so I worked. Well, that's how we met. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, but I worked for Will Smith's company at the at Universal Studios, his Overbrook Entertainment. So I was working in the music division, um, helping license movie license music for film soundtracks. Yes. Um, so Melissa so,
0: worked on the film side, and I was working on the. I'm sorry, Melissa worked on the music side. I was yeah. on the film side. That's where we met. Yes,
1: that's right, how we on. met. Um, but I had left that job because my then boss had moved to a bigger job at Sony and she couldn't take me with her. And I had to decide what to do next. And a mentor, may she rest in peace because she passed earlier this year, um, suggested, why don't you teach for a little bit and then see what else you might want to do. So I I said, sure, why not? So I got a job at a private school Mm -hmm. and I was teaching and then performing a lot with this dance company and then that's when I met um, Jacqueline Shay Murphy, who's now a professor at UC Riverside. And she suggested I apply. Anyway, I applied because I realized I enjoyed teaching, but I didn't like teaching high school. I got in um, and I thought, OK, let me go. Mm-hmm. And if I don't like it and if I don't find that it's for me, I'll leave. You know, I don't have to stay because a, P- uh, a decision to get a Ph.D., is a really serious one and it, re- it, it requires a huge time money and emotional and mental commitment because it's, yeah. it's basically, well, as a runner, I'm going to use a running uh, metaphor. It's basically a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. So you have to be really planning properly, you know, your life in terms of, cause you're going to have, you're going to be working on this PhD for four to four to six years. So yes, So then I decided, and then within my first year in the PhD program, I realized I enjoyed it. I thought, wow, you can think critically about dance and dance on screen. And I can write intelligently about all these pop music videos that I grew up watching. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, um, I remember I wrote this great essay about J-Lo's, that concert that J-Lo did back in 2001 in Puerto Rico. I probably should publish it. I mean, I don't know. I have some graduate students now that are always telling me, Melissa, you need to write the genealogy of J.Lo and performance. Whatever, we'll see. But anyway, yeah, so it wasn't, it, to make a long story short, it wasn't like a well, long, drawn-out decision to go mm-hmm. into academia. It was more this opportunity landed in my lap. And I, was, I have always been a good student, and I've always enjoyed reading and writing and dialoguing about ideas. So I thought, why not? Because I figured if it doesn't work out, I'll do something else. And here I am 20 plus years later and I'm still in academia. (laughs) Well, I'd say it worked out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Mm. Um, How did any manifestation that you had, I guess worked on previously, help you take this leap of faith to
1: pursue your PhD and an academic career? Uh, that's a good question. I don't think, yeah, again, I don't think I planned it too much or it wasn't like my dream or passion per se. I just Mm -hmm. knew that I was good at, um, analyzing things like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a cultural critic, so I knew that I was good at that. I knew that I had an eye for dance analysis for just semiotic analysis, you know, analysis of representation. And then, um, my undergraduate training to be always attentive to sort of race, class, gender. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was able to take that training and apply it to dance and further mm-hmm. it and expand on it. Um, so, you know, I don't wanna seem glib, uh, but uh, academic analysis always came, it comes easily to me. I think other things are a bit of a, more of a struggle, but we can talk yeah. about that later. Um, and you know I don't i I have a lot of friends that we discuss colleagues about this concept of what is it um imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and i I don't even think, and sometimes I think it's like, yeah, I don't feel like I have that because I think that uh you've never struck me as a person that suffers from that, oh, well, yeah, because I figure there's space within the title of a profession for the person to be of a, ver- a variety of things. Like there's no cookie cutter way to be an academic the way there's no cookie cutter way to be, I don't know, a doctor or, I don't know. So, and especially within the field of arts, you mm-hmm. know, uh, arts and humanities, which is my field. I think there's a lot of possibility available in how you s- address and speak about your interests that, I don't think there's a need to feel like, oh, I'm not in, I'm not in this space. So I don't know if I had a vision for this profession. uh, But once I landed and I landed in it, and then, you know, I went through all the subsequent hoops that you have to jump through in academia, right? You know, first the dissertation, then you have to defend it. Then you get your PhD. Then you have to get your first job. Then you have to start publishing then you have to publish your book. Then you get promoted. Then you then once you're promoted, then you start doing more service. And then you start being more. So all the hoops I've had, each hoop I've had to jump through, you mm-hmm. know, I guess I've done it. So I um, I think now I'm starting to think a little bit more on what I want to manifest. Ah. Because in the past, it's been more like, well, I, j- I just need to tick this box. Right, so,
0: right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So now that you're like well entrenched in your career, you can I guess think about a a broader picture of maybe something I don't know. I don't think you get more niche than what you are, but anything like more, more specific within your field that
1: you um, wanna... it's not so much more it's more about really choosing being very cautious and careful about what I choose to do next and what I wanna spend my time doing. Because right. a lot of things that have happened to me professionally I haven't planned on them happening I haven't looked for them to happen mm. they've just mm-hmm. happened mm-hmm. and and I know that sounds like you know like again I don't want to sound glib or like oh I'm just lucky and no, no, here no. I am it but, doesn't
0: sound glib it yeah. sounds like you've just been like open to opportunities that that came your way and pursued what was interesting to you correct yes yeah.
1: an opportunity comes and I think okay yeah sure why not Now as I'm getting older and I'm more established, um, I have to ask my, I'm, I'm starting to not say yes right away. Yeah. I'm practicing, I'm practicing saying no. And I'm practicing taking my time in responding by asking myself certain questions. Um, Right. Things have to serve
0: you better now. I get it. I'm in the, I'm in the same sort of thing. I get it. I get it.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. All right. So tell us when you were thinking about how to architect your professional life, were there any key elements, two or three key elements that you wanted out of a career?
1: Um, my academic life or just my, my perfect, uh, profe- like the way I imagined a perfect, do you know? Okay, here, here you go. This is a good way to answer, <laughs> so, you, you know, at least once or twice a year to either, it's either Christmas or your birthday or, you know, some holiday or your birthday, you start looking back at your life. Yep. So I don't know, recently this year I was like, okay, so I was thinking about if if my 12-year-old self met me, mm-hmm. ah, because I was spending time with my five-year-old niece and she was saying mm. all these sweet things to me this summer. So um, I thought, you know, if I met my five-year-old self or if I met my 12-year-old self, what would she say about, you know, me almost 51 year old Melissa. And I I remember thinking what I, what I imagined I'd be doing as an adult. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if I, you know, I say doctor, lawyer, fashion designer. I remember I told my mom, I want to be all three, but (laughs) ha ha ha, whatever. But I do remember saying, well, I want to travel. I want to be able to travel a lot Mm -hmm. with whatever job I have. I want there to be variety Cause yep. I get bored easily. That's probably why I like being an academic because it, it's a cycle of in threes. It's like every three months, it's something new, whether it, because of the semester or the quarter. Yeah. Last. And definitely the students. Amount of time. Yeah. And then the students cycle through and then the projects cycle through. So you're not doing the same thing for, for too long, unless you're working on a book and that takes a couple of years. But, um, so I think my, my younger self would probably approve up to a certain point, <laughs> but I think they would approve in terms of like sort of the traveling and uh, the cultural capital that I have. Yeah, right. I so I think that that suffer. that was always yeah. I like it's for me it's about cultural capital. So you know, books and theater and dance and performance and right. So the arts and humanities play a big part in in how I see my life as being rich and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, it keeps me going like the passion I have for life. And then professionally, personally, they intertwine a bit. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's a form of manifestation. You may not, Hmm. not have been consciously thinking about manifestation per se, but just really considering those elements, uh, of what you wanted manifested itself in this career. So right on. Right on
1: uh, <laughs> I, guess. I know
0: that um, that you spent a bit of time in London uh, when you moved abroad, um, oh, yeah. what were the risks involved in doing this?
1: Oh, well, there were many. First, it was the the, the financial risks. There was a bit of a pay cut especially because I moved in 2008. Mm -hmm. and um then december 2008 that was a huge market crash so the dollar and the pound yeah so that affected my life financially then you know moving away from family and friends i think that's was the biggest risk the family moving away from family and i was away Mm -hmm. for 11 years that i think has affected me we can talk about that later Um, Mm um in certain ways a and then when, when I first moved, I I was married. And then, so I risked my first marriage. You, you know, we are subsequently divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a risk. And then, you know, living in a culture that's not the one you grew up in. Yeah. Uh, mind you, there wasn't a language barrier because it's the UK. But there was a language barrier because British English and American English are ca- can be different in many ways. And British culture is very different than American culture. The English are very, are very reserved. Mm, they can be very reserved. And then there's sort of, this is British politesse. So you have to learn how to read between the lines of what it is they're saying. I remember someone recommended this book, Watching the English. It was a book written by an, an English woman anthropologist that she does an autoethnography or an ethnography of Englishness.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was
1: only after I read that book, which was maybe three years after living there, that I began to understand, oh, that's why this happens. Oh, that's why they act like this. Oh, that's why I need to say this more. So it, it, mm. it served as a guidebook on how to navigate another culture. Um, mm. So I think, yeah, it was family and friends, money, and um, feeling, trying to navigate being In in a culture that's not your own, but also I'm I'm a child of immigrants, so I'm first generation. So similarly, um, where are your parents from? My mom is from Colombia, Barranquilla, Colombia, which is from, you know, most people know about Barranquilla because of Shakira and um, what's her name? Sofia Vergara. Mm -hmm. And my father's from Cuba and they met in New York in the late 60s, early 70s, late 60s. So as a child of immigrants, I I also don't feel... I mean, yes, you feel like the U.S. is your home because culturally and po- popular culture-wise and certain things you grew up doing. Right. And it shapes who you are. But, you know, as you know, being African-American, that uh, for people of color in the U.S., we have a different relationship to patriotism, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so... So I guess there's been I f- that 4th like root- of July thing. <laughs> yes. So the rootlessness of being a child of immigrants kind of continued by being an American in the UK, but not feeling rooted to the UK, obviously. And then not really feeling 100% American, but then realizing my Americanness slash New Yorkness in the UK because of I was very direct and blunt and they oh you are Americans. Oh, you're from New York. Oh, you're, you know. Anyway, that was yeah. a long way to answer that question.
0: <laughs> no worries. No worries. I just want to shout out to my mom who was born on Juneteenth because I know I said for the July. Teresa. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Um, okay. Speaking of women of color, um, mm-hmm. what is the bigger challenge for you in your work? Is it being heard or actually making things happen? And do taking risks play into any of this at all?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. As a woman of color, I think it depends mm-hmm. on the room. And I don't mean an actual room. I also mean metaphorical room. Exactly. The room that you're in, it depends on it's a digital how you space these between. days too. Right. It's true. Yeah. How you move between being heard and making things happen. I've been fortunate enough to have leadership positions, and my style of leadership is very non-hierarchical i don't like to just delegate i believe that the people that i'm quote unquote a leader to are my colleagues um mm-hmm. remember i'm I, you know i was i was the president of the dance studies association okay so i was quote unquote the leader but everyone else in the room was like me and that we all had phds we all have teach we all so i said well we're all qualified to do the same thing i'm not here to tell these people what to do so i believe in right sort of uh, community, collegial forms of decision-making. Um, so I think that's how I navigate that space. And I'm sure
0: leading in a in a flat manner like that, you, it is more effective in getting things done than, you know, I'm the boss here
1: and that sort of thing. Do what I say. Yeah, and yeah. also I can't believe that people still lead that way anyway. Like, mm-hmm. How was that affected leadership, anyway? Yeah.
0: No comment. Uh,
1: cool. Well, I mean, at some point as a leader, you do have to make like the quote-unquote executive decision, um, but you would hope that you've created a space where everyone's has been listened to, so that when you make that executive decision, uh, people are you're transparent as to why you've made it. Anyway, yeah. Yep.
0: Got it. Uh, And your work seems to be a rare mix of creative and administrative. What are the thorough lines of these disciplines and is one more impactful or important than the other?
1: That's so funny. I was talking to, was I talking, was it a student? Ah, yes. I was talking to a student on, on Friday and Mm -hmm. they were making a comment about um, their boss who's an administrator. And they were saying that, uh, that their their boss doesn't have very good communication skills and and isn't a really good administrator that they're more interested in pursuing their creative stuff outside of their job. And I said, well, you know, a lot of creative people always make the excuse that, oh, they're creative. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not a good administrator. I'm creative. I've used that too in the past, but I soon came to realize that even if you're creative, uh, that even if you're creative doesn't mean that you can't administer creatively, right? Mm. And and ultimately you have to admin, you know, some administrative stuff is boring like you know, I I've, I've been sitting on some receipts for a month. I have to like put receipts and do the expense report <laughs> and all that. It's just but some those things need to get done. Yeah. Um so how do you make that creative? I don't know, you put on a fun podcast, you listen to music. Um I think that the, you need you can't escape From administrative work as a creative, especially when you're starting out. I mean, obviously, you know, as a as a more seasoned professor, I can I can have graduate students or teaching assistants stuff to help me with a little bit more of the boring administrative stuff, so I can be left to do the more creative teaching, organizing, curating, planning. Mm -hmm. But um, but I do think that there that you need. To pay attention to both and even if one comes more naturally to you than another you still should develop skills in things yeah. that aren't necessary because you, even skills. if something comes naturally to you you can still be better at something and the same thing if something doesn't come naturally well you need to develop the skills like i remember i had a great colleague once who helped me get a bit more organized administratively because i was kind of sinking it was a sinking mm-hmm. ship Um, But also, yeah, so I and I was just listening to the these women who were the author of this book, um, Your Brain on Art, and they were talking about how to bring more art, art, artistry and creativity to your life. Mm -hmm. And and they were speaking about sort of Buddhist spirituality and indigenous um, ways of being in the world and. I remember they said, well, if you, if you treat everything you do as a ritual, there's already kind of creativity in it. Hmm. Right. So even making a bed can be creative because it's a type of ritual. And, and, you know, one thing that stuck to me is like there, there's a, a certain number of indigenous languages that actually don't have the, the word art in really? the language, because for their ways of doing and living and knowing, everything is an art form. Tending to the plants huh. is an art form. Fishing is an art form. Speaking with your family, right? So they don't need the word art because everything already involves being artistic. So I that stuck to me yesterday. Wow. So now that you're asking that question, I wanted to share that little story. All right. So, yeah, this is also a plug for there. that book, Your Brain on Art. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I will have to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of writing and books, you yourself have written and edited a number of academic books and have written op-ed pieces. Mm-hmm. Have you taken any particular risks in um, how you form the narratives and have there been any, have there been any inflammatory responses to your work? And if so, how'd you deal with that?
1: Oh, I can share an anecdote. Yes. Do so, so, so I like, yes, I can. So one, um, I actually enjoy writing, but it takes me a long time. I, fi- I struggle with finding the time to write. Well, I was a busy academic and I'm actually in the process of writing my second self-authored so, monograph so I can become full professor. Right um, so my writing style, so I don't, okay, so I always have a lot of graduate students that tell me, I don't want to write dry academic books. I don't want to write academically. I don't want to write, I don't know how to write academic. And my response is always like, no one is telling you to write academically. We just want you to write clearly Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and, you know, present your ideas in a clear way so that your reader can follow your brain process. It's like, because nobody thinks linearly, we we train ourselves to think and write linearly. Right. Um, So because a lot of, well, because all of my research interest lies in um, a, sort of Black social practices, mostly in Latin America, already there's a different, they have different ways of thinking about time and space. So those different ways of thinking about it open up ways for me to express it written in the written language. So that allows me to be creative within quote unquote academic language. Um, Like, I think that's one of the reasons why my book, my She is Cuba book received... uh, so many accolades was because I presented a way to think about a social dance history by including memoir, uh, creative writing, uh, photo analysis, historiography. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I threw in multiple ways of writing about a particular subject because I, I felt that the, the academic discourse wasn't the right, voice or rhetoric for mm-hmm. this particular, um, subject. So, and I, I still remember when think, you
0: got that award yeah. that ah, award. Yes, you came had with
1: me, Pomona yes. college, right? A Pomona. Yes. The one at Pomona. Yeah. Um, so I'm in a lot of my creative. Praxis in terms of writing is in infor- now, you know, in hindsight is informed by, um, uh, black women authors. You know, mm-hmm. I've been reading uh, fiction, you know, fiction, poetry, mostly by women of color. And that informs how I think and see the world. And mm-hmm. then that, you know, that then informs how I'm analyzing uh, the work that I'm engaged in researching. Right. So right now um, I was just on a writing retreat, a Zoom meeting that I meet with like four other professor friends and we're all writing books for different things. And I'm, I was telling them, Oh, there's this relationship between these communities in Colombia and the river. And I know I'm going to have to write about this dance, you know, metaphorical dance between Mm -hmm. them and the river. And it needs, so already I'm thinking, okay, how do I manifest that creatively Mm -hmm. in my writing? So, so so there you go. That's how I'm answering <laughs> your question. All right. Okay. And then, um, oh yeah. Well, the other thing was in an op-ed piece once I I wrote. I think it was in response to some. Oh God, this was the and feminist wire. Where have your wire. op-eds been published? This was in the Feminist Wire ages okay. ago, like in the early tens. Mm-hmm. There was there was some controversy happening in the U.S. I forget about. Um, uh, a Latina woman trying to get access to birth control or something and they wouldn't give it to her. So then I remember thinking, well, somebody just needs to write about a, a Latina just needs to write about how much they like to have sex. So then I just like, I, I just wrote something. I literally <laughs> sat down, which is at my, at my couch one evening and I I started the, the op-ed of like, I like to have sex, blah, blah, blah. You know but again it was creative writing i wasn't necessarily talking about me per se but i was like donning this persona of like you know a woman who's comfortable right. in her sexual with her sexual with her sexuality and her desires for sex yep um and then i linked it to that the discourse happening um and i and i remember getting tweets tweets back from people and then i wrote another one about um citizenship, so, yeah, people started, in, so you're talking about inflammatory responses. No, I, I remember just getting a lot of tweets back from conservative Latinos, always conservative mm. Latinos, because, because, <laughs> dot, dot, yeah. dot. Latinos tend to be conservative in this country, in general. I don't know. I don't, that's another podcast topic, but. um, Well, perhaps
0: yeah. they could not picture themselves with the sexual desires of the persona you were inhabiting
1: when you wrote that. <laughs> 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 yeah when it when it ironically you know latin women are overly sexualized all the time and let alone and then all of a sudden you say well i like that and it's somehow they come down on you so that was the irony of it all and i did i think i did it on purpose so yeah sometimes i wish i would do more of these things but now you know i think i missed the window of opportunity because now everybody can do one of those right there was a time and place for it well <laughs> they may not all do it well so. right Right, and now there's TikTok, the three-minute TikTok video. Maybe that's where I need to do it.
0: (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Ah, You never know. (laughs) Um, So I know that you like to travel like me. You're a pretty big traveler. Where did your desire to travel come from, and how do your travels inform your work?
1: Oh, yes, I love to travel. Um, Well, my, you know, as a child, we traveled a lot between... New York and Colombia and New York and Venezuela. We never went to Cuba because we couldn't. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was a very imaginative child, and I used to watch a lot of period costumes. I still do. It's like my favorite genre: historical yes. fiction, I remember costume we dramas.
0: Fell together in New York
1: yes. all those years yes. ago with your mom, oh my <laughs> with my mom and dad. Yes, and yes. You yes, yes, yes. took a bite of his sandwich, and he never he never forgets. <laughs> um, yes, so. I w- there was always this desire. I, I want to see these monuments. And I used to lo- watch a lot of movies. I still do. So there was always this desire to see these places I read about or I watched. And also, I'm a Sagittarius. And they say Sagittarius is a mutable sign and we love to travel and adventure. So it is mm-hmm. true. Um, and then because I had a facility for learning languages, that's also where my desire to travel comes from it's like, well, I want to go somewhere where I speak the language and I can practice it, or I can practice the language I I'm learning. And then the other desire comes from what I mentioned earlier, I think is sort of this feeling of rootlessness mm. that I that I mm-hmm. carry for being a child of immigrants here and not feeling rooted in the US, not really feeling rooted in Colombia, not really feeling rooted in in Cuba but knowing Mm -hmm. that I belong to all three in a weird way. um, Mm. So I think the travel is not about finding a place to be rooted, but it's just a continuation, a pleasurable continuation of that rootlessness.
0: But did you still feel that way growing up in New York? Uh, Well, New York feels like
1: home when I'm there. I I feel like New York has shaped me, Mm -hmm. you know, the way i carry myself in the world and the way i walk and sort of yeah the way i the way i carry myself in the world and sort of the the urban confidence i guess that new york yeah. gives you right because i was taking the subway at 12 13 years old by myself you know all the way from from queens all the way into the city and back and then you know i i i, I follow people on instagram like oh well, i have to drive my kid to here i have to drive my kid there my mom didn't drive me any anywhere. I was either
0: on that <laughs> the New bus, York subway, drove you. <laughs> I was either
1: on that on the subway right. or on the bus. Hello, nineteen eighties childhood, um, right? Gen X childhood, but uh, it's so, so interesting
0: that you felt that sense of rootlessness when growing up in New York. You know, you weren't exactly in a homogeneous
1: environment. No, I wasn't. You could, it, like my best friends were Jewish, Filipinos, South Asian. Uh, I remember we, there was a girl that was Greek for a bit. Uh, we were friends, so yeah. Um, I actually didn't have a lot of Latin friends until the end of high school or early college, in college. Mm. Anyway, yeah. Um, so and now travel, I get excited. I try to find conferences uh, in cities that I've never been in, countries that I've never been, so I get to go. And you yeah. know, because I, te- I I'll text you I'm like Trinette. <laughs> There's a conference in such and such place. You want to join me?
0: Tagged along and, on some of your adventures.
1: Yes. So I, so I always try to, yeah, because I just like being out in the world. Um, and I imagine I, I don't want to make assumptions here, but hmm?
0: your not having children has really allowed you that kind of freedom
1: to to express that part oh, of oh. yourself. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't, especially when I lived by myself in London, um, after I got divorced and before I met studies, and even when we first, my my current husband, because um, mm-hmm. we weren't living together for the first part of our relationship. And even then, because I was, I didn't have to answer to anybody, a mm-hmm. pet, a kid, a partner, because I was living by myself in London. Oh, Yeah. I just get up and go. Oh, look, it's a long weekend and Ryanair has 50 pound tickets to (laughs) Prague. Okay, I'm going to go. Right. So that's also, that was one of the best things of living in London. I mean, I was cheap tickets around Europe.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm kind of upset that you're not still there for my own selfish reasons.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do we? Jessica's in London, but yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same. So yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, already well, we're I mean, very sim- similar
0: in that, how we just
1: go, go. I mean, yeah. we
0: grew up very differently, but I think there's a lot of similarities too in the way that we grew up. First of all, our mothers have the same first name, so let's start there yes. Um, yes. and just growing up around a great mix of people and having this innate curiosity and desire to, to get out of our home. You know, you're from New York and I grew up south of Chicago. So we both grew up in these huge urban environments, but still had a desire um,
1: mm-hmm. to get out more in the world and see what yeah. else is out there. Yeah, so, just yeah. just curiosity. Like, I, I know some people, new, new places and new people and new environment uh, create anxiety for them. But for me, I'm like, bring on the new. I mean, I may not be the most talkative, uh, energetic person right away. But I'm always happy to be in a new environment, new new something. yeah. And for the folks listening
0: who don't know who Jessica is, that Melissa mentioned, Jessica is another friend who lives in London. She is also a Latina. So we'll throw that out there. Yeah. Cool. All right, Melissa, I have one more question for you. Last question.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: What has been the biggest risk that you've taken in your life and how did it pay off?
1: Okay. The biggest risk. I would say two okay well three but here we go so first one yeah moving to london taking that that career risk which we mm-hmm. talked about already mm-hmm. <laughs> number two i would say buying a house <laughs> and that tbd yeah. in terms of whether it will pay off because again i'm here i am talking about rootlessness but now i feel rooted to a house and i'm still kind of wondering hmm, what is this about and then i think <laughs> the the biggest risk was the decision to not have children Mm. Um, because I think it's a risk, whether you have them or whether you don't, they're both risks. They just have different outcomes. Right. Um, Or I mean, yeah, they have different outcomes, but I know that, um, uh, being a, a child free woman, Latina woman married to a, Greek man where both of our cultures are very much centered around family and family mm-hmm. means children mhm so mm, there's that risk there of okay well then how do you center this idea of family um, without centering the child because you know i i notice in when we go back to visit family, everything's always about the children that are there and everything stops for the children. So, and I don't know if it's a sign of the time, it's a different kind of cultural shift where, because, you know, when we were growing up, if you ran up to adults talking or doing something and you interrupted, you were oh, told no. to, you were yeah. told to like, go, get out, My, go upstairs, play, don't come down here, go outside, right. don't come back until it's dark. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. get out of my kitchen. It's clean. That was my mother's big thing. My, cliche, my kitchen is clean. Don't you dare step in it. Even and you'd be hungry, and you weren't allowed. <laughs> you just weren't allowed after she cleaned the kitchen. And now everything is more centered towards the the child. Which it's it's I find it really ironic because it's not like our culture makes parenting easy. It's actually made it harder. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking about all my friends that had children and were locked locked inside with them during um COVID and all that. Um, but again, the risk, you know, not feeling like how do I construct who I am uh within Latin culture when what? the motherhood is not an identity I have, and that's usually the identity that brings Latin women together. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, my, my this whole idea of like, oh, who's going to take care of you when you're old? I'm like, that doesn't mean your kids are going to take care of you when you're old. Exactly. Um, I, I think it does give women a lot of freedom to be child free. Because at the end of the day, most of the labor for child rearing falls on the, on the woman. Anyway. Falls yeah. on the woman. Unless she's smart enough and lucky enough to to be with a a, a partner uh that believes in the 50-50 parenting split <laughs> yeah um so yeah i think i mean i do i regret not having children no um but you know you only realize those things much later in life i would say because i think my my community of female friends is very strong um, we have sev- we between the both of us we have seven nieces and nephews and maybe one or two of them will want to be with us when we're old, you know, when somebody comes out of the woodworks as you age. Um, right. And then in my family, um, there's just me and uh, another cousin of mine who also is a Sagittarius, ironically enough. And mm-hmm. she was an only child and she doesn't have children. So we're the only two women in the whole cousin consortium wow. that don't have children so, I think that that again, I say it's a risk because the family tends to define you against motherhood, and then when you're not, what else? It's it's about a how do you install a cultural shift in this idea of the Latino nuclear family mm-hmm. um, that gives space to the power that comes from the child-free woman to the for the family. you know. Because I'm the one that actually can get up and go in case somebody gets sick and needs somebody to take care. Of. I'm the one that I'm the one that the kids can come to the non-judgmental auntie who will let them. Because I have right. my, my, most of my family is very conservative about everything. Um, the ones that have children especially, um, but I'm the one like, come, I'll get your ear pierced. Come, I'll get you the birth control. Come. Now, would I be <laughs> like that with my children? I think so, yes, because I actually. I'd had children I probably wouldn't be ah whatever who knows um so <clears throat> well that's
0: just the thing yeah. you can never know
1: like I've you can never know chosen
0: yeah. to not have children and it wasn't like this major decision or uh, yeah it was a major decision but it wasn't like I was thinking oh well when I'm old what's going to happen to me because first of all we could all drop dead any day now so correct there's and that was- but um for me, the, it was always like, well, if I can't say hundred percent yes that I want to have them, then the answer is no, because it's just too much of a responsibility, and it wasn't that sort of risk is not one that I was going to take. Like I could risk all I want, running around the world doing crazy things and living a crazy life, but yeah, but not risking risk... bringing
1: exactly, yeah, bringing yeah. my yeah. yeah exactly it was uh, risking bringing life into the world when you know that. A well the world is a is a mess, but I think the world has always been a mess. People oh back in the day, the world has always been a mess. A hundred years ago there were some other problems. So we just
0: have media now or yeah. A faster um, news cycle.
1: Yeah. But but yeah, I just I just feel like I remember my my brother and sister in law, they've have children. And uh when I was making the final decision and I was speaking to my partner and I was already um uh, perimenopausal when mm-hmm. we met. So I would, if, if I had been desperate to have children, mm-hmm. I would have probably had to have a lot of help, like, um, injections and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was another consideration. But then, uh, and you know, I know a lot of women that go through that because they really want to be mothers. So right. I was a little bit indifferent. And then I remember thinking about uh, my brother and his wife, and thinking, you know, if I had the setup, if I had the setup, then the decision would be, I would come to a decision, a different decision. And by setup, I mean, again, realizing that at the end of the day, it's a lot more work still for the woman, even if you have a 50-50 partner. Um, and here I'm talking about a hetero relationship because in in mm-hmm. gay relationships, there's always, there's they still need to split who's the more domestic one and whatever. Um, but if I had the setup and by setup, means you're living together. My partner and I weren't living together. There's a bit of financial support. Yep. <laughs> and there's family around. I had yeah. none of that. I had none of that. I yeah. didn't have family around. I didn't have the financial, even though my mother was throwing money at me. Oh, just have a baby. I'll give you money. <laughs> um, I'll pay for you. I'll pay for everything. And, and great. I have a friend whose mom... Cause she's a single mom and her mom pays for all her daughter's clothes and all that. And yeah, family steps up eventually. Um, but yeah, I didn't have the setup. So I was like, look, if I don't have the setup, this doesn't seem like a good decision. And I've been known to make lots of fly by the seat of my pants decisions. Yeah. So I thought, okay, maybe that, maybe I should just make that decision the way I've made my other life decisions by flying in the seat of my pants. But because it's, Bringing life into the world, I was like, "No, I'm not. Right. The, the child doesn't deserve a fly by the seat of my pants decision." Oh, Melissa, but what about people that get pregnant by mistake? Yeah, well, mm, <laughs> that's another story. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm for that's don't, basically yeah, what happened yeah. with my mom. <laughs> Just say that. Yeah, but to your point about family, you know, she was living in Joliet, and my entire family was there to help her support her with me and and stuff and it was at a time where my mom didn't have the choices that i had to right to run around and That's get the world and stuff and
1: you know to yeah go to college before all these things and it was before roby wade. Yeah. wade which we're which now we're back to the same right thing. right but, um
0: so it's it's uh it's interesting that we both came to the same conclusions about having children having the way that we came into the world and our circumstances were so
1: different from the outset.
0: But yeah, like I
1: think, I think I was kind of uh, like I was unplanned, but I, but all right, whatever. That's different. Yeah. Most I was unplanned, but so be it. <laughs> you were a happy surprise. I was happy. <laughs> like, and, but yeah, I enjoy the kids in the family. Uh, and I'm happy to offer my auntie services to blood or not blood related youth. And there you have it.
0: (laughs) Well, if nothing else, this just proves that, you know, there's no right way for everybody. Everybody is different. We all come to Mm -hmm. our conclusions in in different ways. And, you know, as, as women empowered, we can make these choices and there's just different paths for everybody, like, you know, Women today don't need to feel like, or women, I should say, coming up in their early 20s and stuff, finding their footing, it, they don't need to succumb to this pressure to have a child because they think they want to have one or they think they should have one. If they want to have one, you know, that's all well and good. But there are other ways of being in the world
1: that don't yes. involve motherhood. And, there's, mother and, and there's other ways to be uh, nurturing, right? Yes. Because yes. Exactly. Mothering slash parenting is about nurturing some someone or nurturing something, nurturing, Um, you know, with different levels of responsibility. Right. But anyway, but apparently Gen Z is not really talking about parenting because they're too expensive. It's expensive (laughs) and and the environmental catastrophe. So but maybe you'll talk to a Gen Z person and see what they say. (laughs) I can't speak for them.
0: Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for this very invigorating conversation. This was amazing. I appreciate thank you. you coming
1: on. Yes, it's fun having these conversations with friends.
0: Yeah. And thank you all for listening. And uh, all these notes will be in the show notes. So catch you next time. Take care. Bye.
1: Bye. <laughs> Thanks again.